0: Hi Park, we're going to be continuing in our series, Your Kingdom Come, where we've been going through the Beatitudes, which serve as the foundation of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now these eight Beatitudes, or eight blessings, are postures of what type of people enter into God's kingdom. They describe one group of people. They're not describing eight different kinds of people or eight different blessings that you get if you do something, but they are describing that Jesus blesses those who recognize their spiritual need and their need for spiritual wholeness. So today we'll be looking at the fourth beatitude of this, but let me first read in its entirety and then pray and then we'll jump right in. Okay? Matthew 5, starting uh, from verses 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for our time. Father, we thank you that um, you have allowed even just the technology for us to to hear your word through many different homes and and venues that we're in right now. And I pray, God, that as we continue in the series of the Beatitudes, God, that you continue to shape uh, and and reorient the, the posture of our hearts, the posture of our souls. Uh, to long for you. And so as we get into this fourth beatitude, God, allow our hearts to be good soil for it to receive your word. May it nourish it, may it grow, and and may it allow it to be action outside of us. And I pray for all of us now who are just going through so many different things this season, God. May you be near to your people. Um, God, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, these past two months have been quite a season for all of us, hasn't it? You know, we've experienced shelter in place orders. We've witnessed a number of COVID uh, cases go up and debts increase. We've seen uh, many lose jobs, struggle to pay rent, and even have to celebrate graduations and weddings in isolation. And on top of that, we've seen racial prejudice against Asian-American individuals, communities, and businesses because of the virus. We've seen senseless acts of murder against black brothers and sisters and Ahmaud, Brown- Ahmaud Albury and Brianna Taylor just because of their skin color. We've seen the rise of domestic abuse, of mental illness, and so much more that I know some of you are going through right now that I have no idea how that feels or what that feels or what that is even like. And when I think of our passage for today and the season we are in, I don't know about you, but in my heart, in my soul, there's this deep yearning that says, this ain't right. This ain't right. I'm so hungry and thirsty for the wrong, the sickness, and the evil that exists all around us to be made right again. Aren't you? Church, what? are you hungry and thirsty for? What do you hunger and thirst for today? You know, for some of us, I'm sure that it's for this quarantine to end so that we can spend time with friends and family in our church community. We hunger to get out of the house, to have fun, to go to our favorite restaurants. Or we hunger to have some sense of normancy because we're just juggling work and trying to watch our kids or teach our kids uh, to do uh, school online. But for others, this quarantine has hit a bit deeper for us. We hunger for that relational intimacy and companionship that we don't have now. We hunger for purposeful work or for some level of control over our finances. Or we hunger for the healing of the sick, for injustices to end, or for all suffering in this world to just stop. We all hunger and thirst for something. You know, as I've been praying and working through this message today, I feel this fourth beatitude is so timely for us. So let me read again Matthew 5, verse 6. It said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Today, my goal is to answer one question. What does it mean for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And you can follow along through the outline that you have in your Sunday video resource, some of the fill-in-the-blanks that will help you go along with this sermon. To start, let's flesh out some of the words that Jesus uses here. He first introduces this idea of hunger and thirst. Notice that Jesus doesn't use a more literal word like desire or pursue, but he uses hunger and thirst an urge that every human experiences on a daily basis. If you ever skipped a meal before or fasted before, you know that when you're hungry or thirsty, your body, your mind, everything just wants to eat. It wants to fill that hunger and that need. So Jesus, he uses this most fundamental human desire to describe the rawness, the, the depth, the urgency of this beatitude. And a helpful way to explain this posture or this desire is this. To hunger and thirst is to have an inflamed passion for a singular goal. To hunger and thirst is to have an inflamed passion for a singular goal. You know, if you've uh, been like the many who've been watching The Last Dance, a documentary on Michael Jordan and the 98 Chicago Bulls, What's so fascinating, if you watch this documentary, is, Mike, is uh, as you see Michael Jordan be the best basketball player and possibly on the best basketball team of all time, is because when you see his, his, his drive, his passion and hunger, you see that he just wants to win and be the best player ever. And if you watch this series, nothing or no one would get in his way. His goal was so laser focused. It's just it just oozes out of him during the documentary. It affects how he practices. It affects how he pushes his teammates and how he competes day in and day out. He wasn't hungry for other things like fame or money or to be liked. You definitely see that in the documentary. His hunger was single-minded to be the best and to win. That's the level of hunger and thirst Jesus is talking about here. So as we continue, then Jesus shares what we should be hungry and thirsty for. And he says, righteousness. Now, for many, righteousness just feels like a religious word, or even if I asked you to to define righteousness, I would probably guess that some of you would give different and variations of answers to what righteousness is, because it's used over 600 times in Scripture, has a very complex meaning. But to help us, let me define righteousness. The Greek word usune this way. Righteousness is God's character and conduct established and obeyed in every area in our lives. Righteousness is God's character and conduct established and obeyed in every area in our lives. You know, notice here that righteousness starts and flows from the one who perfectly embodies righteousness, God himself. Righteousness cannot be understood apart from God. It flows through his words, through his character, through his actions. So to be clear, when I use righteousness or when Jesus says righteousness, he's not talking about what humans think is right or what society thinks is right. God alone determines what is right. And to expound further, a helpful way I found to understand the breadth and depth of righteousness is in these three aspects of righteousness, which I'm borrowing from John Stott, a well-known British or English pastor. So three aspects of righteousness. The first is legal righteousness. Now this is most clearly seen in the book that we just came out of a little while ago in Romans. So let me read Romans 3, 21 through 24. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You know, another way to define legal righteousness is justification. That without Christ, we are marred by sin and unrighteous before our righteous God. As a consequence, our penalty is death and an eternal separation from God. No amount of human effort or human works can earn a righteous status before God. But only, as we see in this verse, only through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and made righteous. This is the righteousness in which we see those who are far from God be made right through their faith in Jesus Christ. This aspect of righteousness is foundational to our Christian faith. So that's number one. The second aspect of righteousness is moral righteousness. Now, when I say moral, I'm not talking about just simply rule-following. In Matthew 23, which is actually a contrast to the Beatitudes, Jesus gives seven woes that are directed at the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day. In verse 27 and 28, he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, unlike the legalism of doing just the act of righteousness, what Jesus desired is the inner righteousness of the heart, the mind, and the motive that then springs forth into righteousness in character and conduct. And then, as we see in 2 Timothy 3.16, it reminds us where to look and how to, to live righteously. It says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All throughout scripture, we see that we are not made righteous just to be made righteous, we are made righteous so that we can look to Jesus and to scripture to live righteously. This includes the abstaining of sin and evil that is clearly given in Scripture. This includes obeying the commandments given by Jesus and in Scripture. This includes how we talk, how we work, how we conduct our lives, how we conduct our relationships, how we spend our money, how we consume, how we neglect to do things, or how what we watch, or even what we think. It includes everything. The moral aspect of righteousness addresses more of the personal and the individual response of being made righteous before God. And I know that as I say that, many of us think righteousness ends there. But there is still the third aspect of righteousness, which is social righteousness. Do you know what another word that can be used for dikaiosune, the, the Greek word here which is translated as righteousness, another word could be justice. In the original language, the root word for righteousness can be translated to justice, and these words are very closely tied in the Greek and also in the Hebrew language, the the language written for the Old Testament. Now, I know that justice can be a loaded word in our context, but what I believe that this third aspect of social righteousness is referring to is to the act of giving all human beings their due as creations of God. In other other words, it's doing righteousness to others. You know, Tim Keller, uh, a well-known pastor in New York City, uh, says this about doing justice or doing righteousness to others. He says, Doing justice includes not only the writings of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad range of activities, from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life, to regular, radically generous giving of your time and resources, to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. Righteousness is not just a private or moral concept, but it's also how we treat and stand up for others. And this again is most clearly seen in the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. Let me read actually Isaiah 58, verse 2 through 3 and 6 through 7. And God is saying this to the people of Israel during this time. He says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? The Lord says, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Verse 6 is not this the fast that i choose to loose the bonds of the wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke is is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh and isaiah just keeps going on here god points that individual righteousness even in fasting is worthless if, you're for, if you've forgotten that righteousness and justness also belongs to doing to others. And again, just my last example, in Matthew 25, the, the same book that we're in in the Beatitudes, Jesus reminds his disciples that when you feed the hungry, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, and visit the prisoner, that whatever you do for the least of these, you did it for me. The heartbeat for righteousness through the act of justice for others, especially for the most vulnerable, is an artery that goes through each page of our scripture. Okay, so let's put these two together. We are to hunger and thirst, to have an inflamed passion for a singular goal, and that goal is for righteousness in all three aspects, the legal, the moral, and social righteousness in us, but also for others. But if I were to ask you, does that define you in your heart today? Does that define your hunger and thirst? I probably not. Because the follow-up question is, why don't we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why don't we hunger and thirst for righteousness? You know, growing up, uh, do you remember, if you grew up in the American school system, uh, the brightly colored posters on every school cafeteria wall? Well, for those who haven't, you can, let me show it to you right here. It's called the food pyramid. You know, the food pyramid labels all the types of food needed for a healthy diet. It would suggest how many servings of fruit, our vegetables, our meat, our dairy, you would need each day. Because if you ate just one section of the food pyramid, you probably weren't living uh, or eating a healthy diet. If you ate just meat, for example, you're probably consuming too much fat and cholesterol. If you ate just grains, you're probably missing out on key vitamins. If you're just eating vegetables, well, you'll probably just be miserable all the time. Well, that's what I, I thought at least when I was a kid. When we're hungry and thirsty, The food pyramid reminds us to eat the entire pyramid, not just one section. Because as kids, and you probably know it, or you probably have kids yourselves, that if they're in the cafeteria, they don't want to eat that food pyramid. We just want to eat pizza or or cake or chocolate milk, right? But I feel in the same way that for us in the church, we have a tendency to pick and choose what type of righteousness we hunger or thirst for kind of like picking a certain food group over another. Let me give you some examples here. We hunger and thirst for baptisms and conversions, but do we also hunger and thirst for sexual purity and for moral purity too? We hunger for the life and flourishing of the unborn, but do we also hunger and thirst for the whole life flourishment of the immigrant, of the undocumented, of the refugees in our country? We hunger and thirst for the abolishment of the evil and unethical global labor of sex trafficking, of corrupt politicians and companies. But do we also hunger and thirst for the gospel to be proclaimed to all peoples and all nations across the world? We hunger for the ending of this quarantine season so we can go back to work and come back together as a church but do you also hunger and thirst for the ending of the systemic injustices that don't give adequate access to schooling, health care, groceries, and even housing, mainly towards our minority communities? We hunger and thirst for the hungry to be fed and for the orphan and the widow to be cared for. But do we also hunger and thirst for the sins of gossip, lust, anger, greed, and pride to be abolished in our lives and in the lives of others? Church, there is so much more that I can add. And I'm not trying to take sides or be political or condemn this side or that side. But what I want to show you is that none of us, none of us have perfectly hungered for the righteousness that God is wanting us to hunger for. We are not hungry and thirsty for the righteousness that God wants us to hunger for. And to be honest, um, as I was preparing this message um, and trying to wrestle with what to say or what not to say, the more I realize that I'm so far from this too. You know, if there was a 24-7 microscope looking into my spiritual stomach, it would reveal that I really don't hunger for righteousness, but I actually hunger for my own self-righteousness. There's just one example here, you know, that keeps coming into my heart. And actually, like a week ago, my wife had to check me on this one too. Um, so my wife and I, Sophia, we, uh, we live in Chicago about like six, seven years now. She's a CPS school teacher. I'm a pastor in the city. And we've had a heart to, to live and do ministry in the city long term, to raise our families, to be near um, the diversity that God has allowed in cities. And even when we wrote our vision statement as a family, Jeremiah 29.7, to seek the welfare of the city was plastered right under that vision statement. But now, being at Park for a little over six or seven years now, I have become a little bit self-righteous, especially for the many who leave for greener pastures, a.k.a. the suburbs, or other cities. You can put that in there as well. Now, nothing wrong with moving into the suburbs or going somewhere else, but when I see them and when I hear them moving, I begin to point my self-righteous finger and say, man, you don't care about justice for the poor. You don't care about reaching for the lost. You don't care about uplifting broken and oppressed communities. All you care about is yourself. But when there are moments when I am challenged or asked to volunteer to, uh, in some sort of capacity for the marginalized communities or to meet my neighbors and share the gospel or to welcome a, a safe family's kid into my home, I say no. I say, "Ah, I'm too busy or I need my space or I'm just too scared to do this. Isn't there someone else to do it? And to be honest, it might look like I hunger for righteousness, but in actuality, I'm too busy justifying my own righteousness and blaming others for their unrighteousness. And man, oh man, I needed to repent that I was not hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness. Why don't you hunger and thirst for righteousness? What's, what's in your way? What's distracting you? What, is, what are you hungering for that's not God's righteousness? And the reason why we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, in me or in one of you, is because sin has deceived and corrupted our hunger. Sin has deceived and corrupted our hunger. Sin keeps our hunger one-dimensional so that we won't be too political or too religious. Sin keeps our hunger more concerned with me and not on the sufferings and injustices of others. Sin keeps our hunger on false idols like money or security or power or sex. And like me, sin keeps our hunger on self-righteousness by doing more finger-pointing than actually looking at the unrighteousness in us. So then what do we do? How then do we truly hunger and thirst for God's righteousness? How do we truly hunger and thirst for God's righteousness? We need to have an intimate relationship with the righteous one. Church, let me say it again. We need to have an intimate relationship with the righteous one. In other words, in order, to have true, in order to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, we need to hunger and thirst for Jesus first. Because only in Jesus do we see true and perfect righteousness. When Jesus came to earth, he was not concerned for his own well-being. Instead, he left the comforts of heaven. He entered into humanity. He walked among us, lived, and proclaimed the message of the kingdom of salvation to all. In life, he knew no sin. There was not a a single hint of sin, of lust, of pride, or selfishness, or greed in him. Yet, he dined with sinners, associated with the sick, the poor, and the foreigner. He taught them, he cared for them, and healed for them. And then he also called out the sins of the Jewish leaders for their pride, for their greed, and their unjust treatment for others. And even when the Jewish leaders cursed him, beat him, and crucified him on the cross, Jesus submitted his perfect righteousness to pay the penalty of all of our unrighteousness. On the cross, Jesus got justice, but we got righteousness. And in three days, death would be defeated, and our resurrected king would be raised again, so that in his righteousness, we are now able to live out that same righteousness and justice to a watching world that is desperately hungry and thirsty. Righteousness springs from a relationship with the Righteous One Church. Don't miss it. It has to be our foundation. And the more we look to Jesus, the more we abide to Jesus, we go to Jesus, we worship him, then our hearts, our our spiritual stomachs will hunger and thirst for the same things that Jesus is hungry and thirsty for. We can't hunger and thirst for righteousness on our own, church. Only by the grace and righteousness of Jesus in us can we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. Last but not least, there is also a promise for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's a sweet one, church. It says, They shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. You know, it's interesting that in this beatitude, Jesus actually affirms the waiting posture of hunger and thirsting for righteousness. He doesn't say, blessed are those who live in perfect righteousness, or blessed are those who uh, embody perfect righteousness, but those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I believe this is so encouraging for us because Jesus is letting us know to be blessed is not necessarily working harder for righteousness but being blessed is having that never-ending hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when we are in that waiting posture, that waiting posture that Jesus has asked us to be in, Jesus promises, you will be satisfied. You know, Jesus' satisfaction comes on a future day when he returns again, his second coming. And it's a promise coming where he says that he will eradicate all unrighteousness, all evil, all sin, all injustice and wickedness and all death on the earth and make all things right again. He's letting us know that our deepest hungers, our most unquenchable thirst, no matter how impossible they seem to be filled right now, he is saying on that glorious day, I will satisfy you. But this blessing isn't just for a future date. There is a present blessing, too, that I don't want you to miss. For all of you, for all of us who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, Jesus promises to be with us always. He is with you right now, right here, in your living rooms, in your kitchens, wherever you are right now. We can still taste that future glory with his presence being with us right now. He promises us that he's alongside us, that he will comfort us, that he will cry alongside with us. He will empower us through his spirit every single day. Our satisfaction is in the ongoing presence of Jesus with us right now and the future coming of his righteousness and justice. Church, let me just close with this. You know, in a C.S. Lewis's book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, we are introduced to some children who travel from the real world to a magical world named Narnia, where they experience adventure, new friends, and have tons and tons of fun and joy. But at the end of each one of those eight books, we see that they are transported back to the real world. But as you read these books, you know that these children never want to leave Narnia, but instead they hunger and thirst to be back. However, in the final book, the, the last battle, the main characters are surprised that they won't be actually returning to the real world as something tragic has happened to them in the real world. But Aslan, who, who is, usually represents the Christ figure in these stories, tells them that you won't need to hunger for Narnia anymore. You can actually stay here forever. And In the book, it ends in this way. C.S. Lewis writes, And as he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover in the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Church, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall one day experience a satisfaction in which every chapter is better than the one before come lord jesus come come soon let me pray god we thank you for your word we thank you that it reminds us that you you bless people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness right now And so, God, as we are in this waiting posture right now, God, I do pray that we, if things are distracting us from uh, righteousness, that you may clear those out, that you may redeem our spiritual stomachs. But in the same way, too, God, I pray for the many who are waiting right now, who are hungry and thirsty right now, God, that you be so near to them, God, that your presence may be felt even right now in this space throughout their weeks when chaos is happening, when uncertainty comes up, God, that you may be near them always and so that we can know that one day, one day, God, that you will fully satisfy us when you come again. God, to your name be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, We pray that you have a blessed week, but now receive this benediction. Go now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being with you always and knowing that he will come again soon. Amen. Church, you are loved. Go in peace.